Good evening, good morning, and good night to everybody who might be listening uh, on various sides of the world, and indeed in various phases of the multiverse as the infinite spheres collide and uh, slide through each other. This is Michael from Germany again, and I'm here to talk to you on the Bibliophile Adventures podcast once again on the wonderful Nomad of the Time Streams series by Michael Moorcock. We've reached the final, the third and final part of the Nomad of the Time Streams. We have met the Warlord of the Air. We have traveled with the Land Leviathan to the United States. And now finally, we are going eastward to meet with the Steel Czar himself. We are going way back to 1981. That's the first publication of this book um, as a volume. And I've got here a wonderful version with all three books included in one volume. It's from the uh, early 90s, 1993, and it's in Orion paperbacks. And I'm going to recommend this version to everybody, this edition, uh, because in the 1993 Orion or Millennium uh, publication, you also have a wonderful foreword by Michael Moorcock himself, and you get... uh, a very short but very, very action-packed essay about uh, Mr. Moorcock's favorite authors from his childhood, uh, various philosophies, um, a lot of politics, and of course, Michael Moorcock being Michael Moorcock, um, you get the claim that he, uh, that he, Moorcock, actually spoke about these topics with John Major, the successor of Margaret Thatcher as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Um, I have no idea whether it's true. It could easily be true. Um, And so please get that edition if you have a choice. I'm going to do a little recap now of the dedications and the introductory quotes of the first two books. So the first adventure was called The Warlord of the Air. And this was dedicated, please get ready, for Colin Colin Ward and the International Anarchist Conspiracy. So Wikipedia tells me, the Colin Ward was a British anarchist writer. He died in 2010. Uh, again, Wikipedia says he's been called, quote, one of the greatest anarchist thinkers of the past half century and a pioneering social historian. So um, you can read up a little bit about Ward online. But basically, um, he seems to have been saying uh, rather mild things. Again, like I mentioned last time, uh, last episode on this book, um, the t- the type of anarchy that they're talking about is very specific. It's not like the um, kind of comic book caricatures that you see in, uh, for example, The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton, uh, which is a stupendous book, um, but it portrays anarchists as people who run around and blow things up, and they have a sort of conspiracy where, whereas obviously... Um, given that Wikipedia has got a a ton of information about uh, Colin Ward, uh, clearly this is not a very good conspiracy because it's not very secret. Um, uh, Whereas in The Man Who Was Thursday, of course, there's a big secret, and at the end of the story it's revealed that um, it was a kind of fake fake conspiracy. So actually what, um, what Ward seems to have said was that you just need to have small communities and um, the smaller the better, uh, quote, in small face-to-face groups, the bureaucratizing and hierarchical tendencies inherent in organizations 
have least opportunity to develop. And it says he admired Switzerland. So Switzerland is totally um, uh, transparent. I mean, in the sense you can go and find it. You can go there. Um, not very secret. Um, also, not everywhere can be Switzerland, but at least it's pretty uh, it's pretty obvious to everyone. It's literally built on a mountain uh, or a series of mountains where you can you can very easily find it. Uh, so that's the dedication of book one. I said in the, I said in the uh, in the first podcast about the Warlord of the Skies. That's book one. That the quotation it starts with is by someone called Lobkowitz. The quotation reads: "The war is ceaseless. The most we can hope for are occasional moments of tranquility in the midst of conflict." By Lobkowitz, and it turns out that uh, having done a bit of digging. Lobkowitz is actually one of Michael Moorcock's original characters. Um, he turns up again in the Jerry Cornelius novels. So, um, like the other books in this series, it's dedicated to a fictional character. And the way that we move backwards and forwards between the real world that we know and the fictional world that we're kind of being introduced into, uh, this is a classic Moorcock device. Um, it's kind of like the world outside your window idea in comic books where um, pretty much the backdrop of your comic is the real world, lots of topical references, um, current affairs are in there, real people that you might recognize, and then suddenly like a superhero turns up. Uh, so Moorcock was definitely doing that a long time ago. Um, this, um, this theme of the small communities is going to return and the personal responsibility, that's, that was promised in my previous episodes. And now we get to deliver. Um, it's coming soon. In the second story, the second adventure, as it's called, The Land Leviathan, we met Attila Hood. Um, sorry, we met uh, Cicero Hood, the black Attila, who was reconquering America uh, for the African Empire. So in the first book, we'd kind of seen... Um, we'd seen the end of the British Empire. We'd seen the end of the American Empire, all these things... The, the great empires of the world had um, flourished and not been destroyed by world wars. Um, but in this alternative history in book one, we saw them being destroyed by their own kind of internal failings. Their own um, crimes kind of came back to haunt them and um, technology progressed and... Uh, there was a certain kind of justice. There was a certain type of um, redemption for the world, maybe a kind of bleak hope for the world as it ended with the atomic bomb landing on Hiroshima, um, just as in our real world. In the second adventure, um, so in the first adventure, we kind of had the triumph of Asia over Europe. In the second adventure, um, basically every empire was destroyed because technology advanced so much that everybody was happy. And being happy, they had nothing else to uh, to strive for. They had no challenge left. And so a world war of everyone against everyone broke out. That's in the second adventure. And in this chaos, um, you had three empires. You had the kind of weak uh, resurgence of the United States, and then you had the strong African empire, which ultimately takes over the United States. Uh, the British empire is totally gone. England is just a wasteland uh, full of savages. And um, you also had this wonderful image of this Indian utopia led by... And you had this sort of utopian vision of this Indian society 
this Indian empire led by Gandhi, um, which was technologically advanced and very strong with a military and a navy, but these were to be used only to escape from any uh, violence in the end. And this was like the great secret of his empire. And this, this book, The Land Leviathan, was dedicated to Mongazi Fazer, who demanded justice. And that's a real historical character. Um, that's a great jazz musician who, who basically traveled the world um, looking for acceptance, looking for a place to kind of settle and make a career, um, and finding that uh, prejudice and racism were just not... Um, were enemies that he couldn't overcome. That I mean, he he's a jazz musician. I mean, he uh, he was looking to play his music, and that's all he wanted, I guess. Um, and eventually, I think he found a, a home uh, where there was at least some tolerance for artists. So, in that second book, we followed the adventures of Oswald Bastable um, back, uh, always going back over the same kind of strange um, adventures um, back to America getting rescued again and again, always as kind of a passive observer, um, often trying to play the hero and often failing until we finally make it to book three. Book three is The Steel Czar, and as you can guess, uh, this time we are going eastward to the Russian uh, Empire, I guess you could call it. The Steel Czar, the third adventure, dedication to the memory of Michael Cornelius Dempsey, who died as he had lived captain of his own ship. So here we have another uh, fictional character, actually, who appears in book one, strangely. We're going right back to book one. And Cornelius Dempsey is this mysterious figure who befriends um, Oswald Bastable, Captain Bastable, as he was in that book, and um, appears like a kind of bohemian character, a bit of a hipster, uh, a bit of a beat a beatnik, and um, I picture him, you know, wearing these uh, flamboyant clothes, maybe with long hair and everything, and um, sort of an odd name as well, Cornelius Dempsey. It sounds kind of Irish, maybe. And um, he uh, kind of tricks Bastable, or he is tricked into thinking that Bastable is one of them, one of the anarchists. So in this alternate history, these anarchists are actually revolutionaries of a kind. And uh, they go around trying to influence history, um, to influence historical developments in such a way that these big empires don't quite cause as much destruction as they might have done. And often they fail. And later you find out that they are actually the time travelers, uh, one of whom uh, will be Oswald Bastable in the end. Uh, but Dempsey is this weird figure. He's kind of introduced as almost like a... A mysterious kind of um, intermediary. He's almost like a trickster. And in the final book, um, he reveals his true identity. And what that might be is one of the main themes of this book. Uh, before I get to that, I'm going to talk a bit about podcasting. So this is not my first attempt at podcasting. I also, this is not my first attempt at podcasting. I also helped out on a Valiant podcast where we tried to read all of the old Valiant books in their suggested reading order, so the story reading order. And uh, the two other folks who were doing that podcast kind of lost interest, uh, which was a pity, I think. Uh, but I had a good time. And um, so this is actually my second podcast that I've been involved in. 
And I'm also thinking of starting up another one uh, using an application, an app called Anchor. Anchor allows you to uh, record podcasts on your phone very, very easily, and they take care of hosting and distribution. I think the downside is that you um, you sign away the rights to your audio, and they're going to use it however they kind of want, basically. Uh, whether they do that just... Whether they make you sign that just to um, do the distribution, or whether they're going to actually take your voice and do analytics or um, data mining or whatever, artificial intelligence, um, I don't know. Or whether they're going to use it for advertising. I mean, goodness me... Goodness only help the person who, who tries to use uh, my recordings uh, for advertising. Good luck to you. Um, but um, I think it's a fun way to do uh, very off-the-cuff um, conversational podcasts, and I think I might give it a try because it also allows you to have call-ins. So like a radio show, you can get guests to do a snippet of like a minute of audio, and you can easily just paste that in using the app um, along with any music or sound effects, that type of stuff. Uh, I've listened to a few of these um, anchor podcasts. I'm not totally convinced about the quality of the podcasts themselves. <laughs> I think it tends to be kind of a little bit rushed, a little bit kind of off the cuff. But for some topics, maybe that's what you want. And also, um, that audience interaction appeals to me a lot. It's kind of like YouTube um for podcasts or like even Twitter in audio form, you just, you chat away and then you wait for your calls to come in and then you respond to them one at a time. So it's kind of a bit, a bit weird, a bit of a weird idea. Uh, let's see if it will work. I hope to keep on recording some more kind of serious, um, audio for this podcast and just focusing on like one or two books at a time. And I'm thinking, to make this anchor podcast about everything else. So all of these other topics that I end up thinking about when I should be talking about the book, those things will go into this anchor cast and you can then uh, call me on anchor and tell me what you think and I will try to uh, be better. <laughs> so that's, um, that's podcasting um, and anchor. And maybe because one, uh, one person... Uh, from the gaming kind of community told me that they'd like to give me some thoughts about my episode on the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And so it's hard to do that unless you've got this platform to do that. So maybe it can be just like the comments box. Um, the theme of this book is actually dreams and reality. Oh yeah. The, the other reason I wanted to say about podcasting, I've gone from a kind of chaotic approach where I had a pile of books literally a huge stack of books on the table here and i was literally flicking through the, the books thumbing through the books um, as i was talking as it was recording so kind of a non-stop live stream of consciousness which is great fun and maybe it's even interesting to listen to but kind of wild kind of exhausting i've toned it down a bit so far and now i've actually started making notes per episode so what i do is i just take a single page in my notebook and I do um, bullet points and maybe, you know, join the join the dots with a couple of arrows, but that's as far as it goes. So then I have in front of me like a map I can follow. Uh, this is a really cool way of um, just organizing my thoughts without too much organization getting in the way and too much work. What I do in that notebook the rest of the time is just to write. I try to write like one to three pages every day 
that is a discipline which I found really helpful as a student way back in the day. Just literally writing everything, any rubbish that comes into your head. And um, many days it is just garbage that you write down, like writing about how much you hate writing. That really helped me to do my master's thesis work, uh, which really was a long piece of writing. Uh, because it just cleared my head and it made me um, relax, I guess, and focus a bit. And also I started to write, you know, outlines of the thesis or like questions that were in my mind about the thesis. So it helped me to externalize those, as they say. And now I kind of do it for creative reasons to give me like uh, an outlet that's not like there's no pressure. I don't feel like I'm writing my, my story, but I'm just writing stories. And as a therapy thing, I think it's great. Um, and that is where it leads into the, the real meat of the story. So as we go along with the story, I'm actually going to keep on with the flicking a bit. I'm going to go through the book, but I'm going to pause the recording. And that's a new thing for me. So if the editing is a bit choppy or if my voice sounds funny, that might be why. So one of the big themes on this topic of therapy, look, in the first book, we meet uh, Oswald Bastable. He goes off on this time travel and when he returns to the real world, to, to our world, he, um, he's an opium addict. And that's because he's been using this opium. He's become a drug addict uh, because it's his way of trying to deal with the wild things that he's seen, the things he's experienced, the, the loss of his family, his friends, his entire world, you know, his frame of reference. Um, and he's obviously in a big mess. You know, it's not good. It's not that he's having fun. He's, he's, uh, he's dampening his uh, emotions, his memories with this drug. And it fits, of course, into this uh, theme as well of the British Empire and um, the terrible things that we did there in the East uh, with the opium trade. Um, it also fits into this second theme of this book, which is dreams and reality. Um, here I'm just going to pause the recording for a second while I find the, the place in the book. I think it would actually be really cool if um, when we edit this, we kept in all of these ch chops and changes and stops and starts because it would maybe give that like weird dreamlike flavor to the podcast. Like it's not quite clear. Are we still in the same timeline? So in book two, we met this character called Una Person. Una Person. Um, sorry, excuse my accent. So she is a time traveler. And in this third and final book, she pops into our time stream, our reality, and she meets the author face to face. It's not Grandpa Moorcock anymore. It's Michael Moorcock, the author of this book. Um, there's no excuse now, except there is because she comes and she hands over another manuscript. That's always the, the kind of conceit, the framing device for these books, um, that you don't meet Bastable as the author, but you get a... a um, a novel <laughs> that's written by Bastable, um, a big, thick uh, manuscript. I recognized the hand at once. It was Bastable's. Good God, I was astonished. He's turning into a novelist. Not exactly. These are fresh memoirs, that's all. He's read the others and is perfectly satisfied with what you've done with them. So the idea is that Moorcock is going to publish these uh, memoirs on the condition that they have to look like a novel. Una Pearson explains... She has always told me, so maybe Moorcock actually has met her a few times. She's always told me that so long as people regard my stories as fiction, and as long as they're fashioned to be read as fiction, then neither of us should be victims of the Morphale effect. 
which is time's sometimes radical method of readjusting itself. The Morphale effect is manifested most evidently in the fact that for most time travelers, only forward movement through time into their own future is possible. Backward movement or movement between the alternative planes is impossible for anyone, save those few who make up the famous League of Temporal Adventures, the League of Temporal Adventurers. So she explains as well um, that Bastable um, is pretty messed up. He's still haunted by angst, I suppose. To a degree, he has many lives on his conscience. He knows only worlds at war. But we of the League understand what a responsibility we carry, and I think membership has helped him. And I'll never meet him again? And I'll never meet him? It's unlikely. This dream would probably reject him. Turning, turn him into that poor creature your grandfather described, flung this way and that through time, with no control whatsoever over his destiny. Hmm. He has that in common with most of us, I remarked. She was amused. I see you are still not completely over your self-pity, Moorcock. I smiled and apologized. So, the most fascinating part is that um, it seems that depending on where Bastable is in the time streams, he has more or less control over himself, his destiny. Um, and as Moorcock looks at this manuscript, I was surprised to notice a few particular uh, peculiar correspondences and coincidences when compared with my grandfather's first manuscript. Yet, Bastable appeared not to make some of the connections the reader might make. I remarked on it to Miss Pearson. Our minds can hold only so much, she said. As I've mentioned before, sometimes we do suffer from genuine amnesia, or at least a kind of blocking out of much of our memory. It is one of the ways in which we are sometimes able to enter time streams not open to the general run of chrononauts. Sorry, excuse the noise in the background. That's just the dishwasher. It's um, Or it could possibly be a rift in the space-time continuum. I'm not sure. Time makes you forget, I said ironically. Exactly. So, there is this feeling that um, even the consciousness of the time travelers is being affected in some weird way that they're not quite themselves all the time. Um, or maybe there's something else happening. So um, just bear that in mind as we flick ahead. Book one, An English Airshipman's Adventures in the Great War of 1941. We go straight into Bastable's voice, and he tells us, It was, I think, my fifth day at sea when the revelation came. Just as at some stage of his existence, man can reach a particular decision about how to leave his li lead his life, so he can come to a similar decision about how to encounter death. He can face the grim, simple truth of his dying, or he can prefer to lose himself in some pleasant fantasy, some dream of heaven or salvation, and so face his end almost with pleasure. On my sixth day at sea, it was obvious that I was to die, and it was then that I chose to accept the illusion rather than the reality. So this is this big theme of accepting the illusion. Um, he drifts and drifts on the sea, and miracle of miracles, he sees this island up ahead. Um, it's Roe Island again, and he sees more and more details, and he says to himself, okay, I'll, I'll take this, uh, I'll, I'll take the illusion, please. It was a fine way to die. I gave another hoarse, mad chuckle, full of self-admiration, and I abandoned myself to the world of my mind. So he thinks he's in a dream, and he decides, well, 
why not? Let me let me just keep on dreaming, and I'll die in my happy dream. But of course, it's um, it's his new time stream. It's um, another very similar world where the British Empire has uh, conquered everybody, except that this time now the Japanese um, have risen up against um, the Empire and they've destroyed Singapore. Bastable's just escaped on a hospital ship and he's seen some terrible uh, carnage where all the patients have died um, and he's only survived by kind of hiding out under the corpses and pretending to be dead. Um, against all odds, of course, he makes his way into a local village where the a hospital airship has crashed. It's kind of like an action movie, but without all of the heroic stuff. You know, it's really terrible stuff. Um, rereading it, I'd say, just for this adventure, start, uh, adventure part, it is really good to read the story. It's a great um, and horrific adventure. Um, pirates or bandits have, have basically taken care of everyone else. He comes and he... Um, he has a first aid kit that he salvaged, and he uses that to um, get aid from these local villages. And just before the village itself is destroyed again by the Japanese, and everybody else is taken prisoner or just killed, he um, he just takes the boat that he was promised and he rows away. And uh, he figures that dying at sea is better than dying on the island. Um, okay, so he might not have been at Row Island. He was probably somewhere. Um, hey, my geography is a little hazy at this point. Row Island is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, he tries to reach Australia. He ends up at Roe Island, um, of course, by destiny. Um, as, he's, as he's on this boat, by the way, he says, I started to indulge in debates with my starving, thirsty self on the nature of life, the nature of death, and the nature of what seemed to me a continuing struggle between chaos and order, with the former tending to come off rather better in the long run. So he lands on Roe Island um, after... This struggle of order and chaos in his in his soul in his mind. Um, Row Island in this time stream is um, abandoned, and really it's on the edge of collapse. There's Malays, there's Chinese people living on the island, um, and there's a, a wonderful doctor who takes care of him, who nurses him back to health. And again, uh, the Europeans are not really wanted on this island; they're a minority now. Uh, just the military are there, and really it's the Indian um, troops who are the, the real power anyway in the military. So, um, and this is a picture I can really relate to, actually. Bastable winds up in the hotel uh, drinking gin or whatever um, with um, a South African called Olmeyer, who's the uh, hotel manager uh, of this sort of empty hotel, and um, in comes Dempsey. Afternoon, Dempsey, I said. He smiled faintly and rubbed at his unshaven chin. Hello, Bastable. Moving in. I was looking for Underwood. So Underwood is the radio operator who's going to save everybody. Uh, turns out that he's an alcoholic anyway, and um, he's run off into the woods with um, one of the Chinese girls. So he's going to get in trouble and cause um, a fight between the Malays and the Chinese on the island. Um, but Dempsey is now an opium addict in this uh, timeline. So, uh, and he keeps dropping hints that he's done something terrible. You weren't in Japan when the bombing started, were you? Dempsey shook his head. No, China. I noticed that his hands were shaking as he lifted his glass to his mouth, and he seemed to be muttering something under his breath. I thought I heard the words, God forgive me. He finished the drink quickly, got up and shambled towards the door. 
Thanks, Nye. See you later. So Major Nye is this um, other British uh, military guy who's just given up hope and is also just wasting time in the hotel. Bastable um, does his best to go and find uh, this radio, and eventually he and Dempsey manage to get in to the radio room. They send a message to Darwin, uh, to Australia, and then adventure. eventually the power runs out. Dempsey drops some more hints uh, that he's done something terrible. That's one of the parts of the book that gets a little bit tedious, actually. Um, you can kind of guess that Dempsey has... Uh, himself been in this position um, that Bastable's been in dropping this bomb and obviously killing thousands of people um, in fact look they even uh, they even make this comparison Bastable tells Dempsey he's an anarchist and he should be sort of up for that kind of thing well Kropotkin called it anarchism but the words come to mean something very different in the public mind you don't blow things up then again he began to shake he tried to speak, but no words came. I had accidentally struck a nerve. I moved towards him. I'm sorry, old man, I didn't mean... He drew away from me. Get out, he said. For God's sake, leave me alone. Dempsey is 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 down so deep, he almost tries to kill himself. But then the um, the airships arrive. He, they think that it's the Australians, but it's actually the Japanese. So once again, our hero is captured. Uh, he finds himself in a prison camp and um, living among a huge uh, mixed group of uh, Europeans and everybody. He meets uh, Victor Macno, who I believe is a historical figure as well. Sorry, his name is Nesta Macno, and he's definitely a historical figure. Wikipedia tells me that he actually, uh, he, was, he died in 1934. He, uh, he was known as Father Macno, Batko Macno was a Ukrainian revolutionary, and he actually tried to uh, to free Ukraine, actually, <laughs> um, in the Russian Civil War. So he's a real uh, historical figure, and he's in the story... Um, he's in the story in kind of the same role. He's... Uh, to cut a long story short, he's trying to free the Ukraine uh, from Russian rule. And um, he also is a kind of fascinating figure full of interesting contradictions um, and very much forgotten. Kind of a Robin Hood figure in the early days, it says here. So um, there's this kind of continual uh, Robin Hood theme to the whole story. And, of course, in the, in the, in the prison camp, uh, Macno and Bastable have this long... Um, debate, a long philosophical debate about politics, socialism and um, democracy and anarchy and so on um, and Bastable comes in with his uh, typical um, simple viewpoint. There's a, a British socialist called Wilson and uh, Wilson wants to make everything perfect uh, by finding a good system to organise everybody Wilson pursued me you're an airshipman by all accounts, as are these fellows. Don't you believe in using the best machinery, the engines, least likely to let you down, the control systems, which will work as simply as possible? Bastable replies, airships aren't countries. They can be, he said, like small countries. I mean, everyone has to learn to get on together. Oh, sorry, that's another officer who says that, but Wilson is this um, annoying figure who's constantly trying to convince everybody to be a socialist. And um, 
as they escape from the from the camp, there's this terrible uh, moment. It's a bit of an action movie moment. They all, um, Bastable and Wilson and some other um, soldiers try to escape from the camp. And so they dig a tunnel. Wilson almost betrays them to the camp guards. He's not even meant to be part of the escape effort, but he, he makes so much noise arguing with them uh, that they almost don't escape. And it turns out that he can't swim. And so when they have to swim uh, onto a ship to get away, they are forced to leave him. And um, as they climb on board the ship, they can still hear uh, Wilson screaming in the, in the water and, and begging for help. So um, there's this t- kind of terrible image of the helplessness of this, uh, this guy who thinks that everything is just a question of engineering. He's an engineer. So for about the third or fourth time now, uh, Bastable is rescued along with a couple of others, um, this time by the Russians. Uh, Captain Korzeniowski is around as well, of course. Uh, Joseph Conrad in the real world. That's just his pen name. Um, I leaned on the rail. From the quayside, I could still hear Wilson's awful voice, pleading and desperate, the wailing of a frightened child. It's uh, it's really terrifying stuff, actually. And the, the action and the horror of this book is, is really up in your face, up close and personal. Uh, so you have to be ready for this book, I think, when you get there. Uh, the other two stories are much more kind of action and excitement. This one is, is about the realities of war, I guess. Uh, so obviously they sail off for Russia and they get recruited into the army of Jugashvili. Jugashvili is his... Um, original name. Uh, we know him and history knows him as Stalin. And in this alternate time series, uh, Jugashvili is leading um, an army of Cossacks to take over Russia. And uh, after some time, it turns out that Wilson uh, survived. And Wilson has built the Steel Tsar. Um, the Steel Tsar is this gigantic, um, shining metal robot warrior and um the idea of this um this machine unlike in the other stories okay and this is this is one of the big things that comes through the whole um this is one of the streams that comes through the whole story the whole set of stories this theme of technology as it increases it becomes more dangerous and in the end the wars that are it's used for are more and more terrible whatever happens whether it's used for good or evil. And um, in this final um, revelation, you see the technology is basically um, personal. It becomes the the form of this one superhero, this super giant robot with a great sword in the shape of a Cossack. And the the purpose of the robot is not really to kill people, although in the end, um, that's what it does, of course. The purpose is to lead the Cossacks um, and to convince them that they're going to win, to convince them that to do anything. So actually, it's more about the ideology. It's more about um, manipulating people into doing what they're meant to do. The only thing is that um, when they give the first demonstration of this robot, um, it malfunctions. So Jugashvili decides he's going to take charge. He uh, takes control of the robot, and then he... Um, he makes it turn on Wilson. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. Wilson's scream was, to my ear, almost the scream of a betrayed child. I still remember it. I've never heard a sound like it. 
Then with swift inevitability the sword began to descend. Wilson's scream was suddenly stilled. Dempsey began to cough. It was a dry, hard noise echoing in the silence. Not a Cossack voice was raised. There was an air... There was still an air of expectancy as they waited to see what either of the steel czars would do next. I heard the wind sighing over the step. Yeah, so um, the steel czar can mean the robot, or it could also mean Jugashvili because he wears this steel mask. So the idea is that he's kind of transferred his personality into this robot. He's almost become a machine. He's become the technology um, and the machine has just turned on the scientist. Jugashvili clapped the scientist on the back again. His brutal laughter filled the air. This is a different scientist, Professor Marek. Professor Marek was saying it was too soon, comrade. He didn't give himself enough time. He was too hasty. The levers were in the wrong places. Jugashvili, well, well, this is poetry, Professor. What poetry? The stuff of epics, eh? Very well arranged. Excellent. He was praising Marek, I think, for Wilson's murder. In this way, he made the man his ally in evil. Marek could neither deny nor agree. So there's this, um, there's this theme of swapping identities with the machine, and there's this theme of people becoming um, accomplices in this, in this murder, right? And the, there's a fake story that comes out too. Jugashvili was addressing his Cossacks again, his arm raised in a triumphant salute. The traitor Wilson has paid the price of his treachery. It is fine justice that he is the first to die. Beneath the vengeful sword of the steel czar. Comrades, the foreigner was a spy for the central government. He planned, in his cunning, to sabotage our war effort. But we anticipated his plans and punished him. For the steel czar obeys only its true master. Poor Wilson, said Una Person, a dreadful lesson. And a final one, said Dempsey. So this is the real, um, the real meaning of the story at last. This lie that comes out of all of this, um, the real conspiracy of the technology and the war and uh, the destruction. What comes out of it is this big lie. Um, and now I did promise in the other episode um, that things go completely bonkers. And this is this is great. This next part. Um, because Von Beck appears. Von Beck is another character who turns up in almost all of Moorcock's books at some point or other. He's actually based on an older character that Moorcock was writing uh, for the pulp novels called Monsieur Zenith. And uh, he just turns up uh, almost by magic. It's basically magic. And apparently no one can see him. He's just floating in and out of shadows. Um, but uh, Bastable and Dempsey and Person can see him. And, of course, they start having this long uh, philosophical conversation about the meaning of reality, um, illusions, and so on. So the situation is that the Steel Tsar is leading the Cossacks off into battle to go and kill uh, Nestor Makhno and his uh, rebels. Um, uh, no, sorry, to go and fight against the central government. In the end, it hardly matters, actually. The point is that it's all very bad. Um, and while the Cossacks are off doing that, causing a distraction, Jugashvili is on this airship with all of his friends, as he sees them, uh, who are the, the time travelers, and they're going to drop the atomic bomb on Makhno. That's right. Um, but then they start having this long discussion. You don't believe in cause and effect then, Captain. Dempsey, Dempsey shrugged off Jugashvili's question, and the warlord did not pursue it. What about you, Mrs. Pearson? Oh, I believe very much in cause and effect, she said but not in a linear sense. 
Every action has a proliferation of consequences. We can't remain alive without being responsible for thousands of actions and their consequences. We simply have to live with that fact and decide, morally if you like, how to formulate a civilized, secure environment for ourselves. So far we haven't succeeded. Jugashvili was obscurely angered by this, but she had less to hide from him now and pursued her point. We think if we name something we control it. So we do. So we do, said the warlord, with disguised belligerence. We make new names, thus we control. It's an illusion, and a confusing one. It does nobody any good. We make new names, and thus create a new future, Jugashvili insisted. He glared out of the window and was disappointed by what he saw. By this means we control both space and time. That is true power, Mrs. Pearson. Neither is controllable, she shrugged. One can only choose alternatives. So they drive him into this fury with this long uh, philosophical uh, debate. And again, this part is worth reading the book, I think. This is um, in the style of great Russian novels. Um, I got up my Dostoevsky at this point because Dostoevsky's brother's Karamazov is um, a gigantic um, epic tome, but basically it's um, a, about five or six conversations. Um they're off to drop this bomb. They're trying to wind up the warlord and make him uh, make him realize the error of his way. Make him realize the error of his way as well. Maybe just to confuse him. It turns out their real mission there is to defuse the atomic bomb and stop it from falling so that the technology itself um, is stopped. But uh, Dempsey wants to get the atomic bomb and use it to stop the Steel Czar. Uh, and so there's a kind of typical uh, ticking clock um, scenario as they try and stop Dempsey. Yeah, and at this point, um, what happens to these actors, the temporal uh, travelers, the chrononauts, it becomes clear that actually because time uh, writes itself depending on what you know and on what you've seen and what other people um, learn by watching you, they actually often have to play act. They have to forget things. They have to pretend uh, to know or not to know things. And Mrs. Person explains this, of course, right in this crisis. They're having this long discussion. I needed to know one more thing. Is Dempsey play acting? I asked her. I don't know, she said frankly. But I must say, Mr. Bastable, I feel very uneasy about his behavior. It's as if he's phasing in or out of several personalities, several options at the same time. That's never happened to any League member before. There are only old stories about it in the early discoveries. So it's possible that Dempsey is actually experiencing like multiple time streams, multiple versions of himself, right? The, um, the reason that Dempsey is on the airship is actually to steer the airship uh, into the ground and blow up Jugashvili. That's what I forgot. Um, but before he does that, he gives um, he gives his friends a chance to escape uh, using some gliders which are on the airship. Uh, so eventually he flies the ship off with the Steel Czar on board and um, they, uh, they obviously uh, they die. Or maybe Dempsey doesn't die because apparently um, an atomic explosion is what um, sends them backwards or forwards through time. Dempsey only wished to make amends, I said. He was. He said it was his right to do what he did. And Una, it was his right. Nestor Macno leaned his back against one of the taut ropes. 
He moved limply like a corpse on a gibbet. He was very drunk. This is after the explosion. He says, We're all guilty. We're all innocent. Only when we accept responsibility for our own actions do we become free. And only when every one of us accepts their fair share of responsibility will the world become safe for us all. Lobkowitz tells us this. Dempsey had an old-fashioned sense of honor. He destroyed himself because of it. Sometimes, as you say, Mrs. Pearson, we must re-examine our ideas. Look carefully at what honor means, for instance. But there is another bit that comes earlier in the book, another moment in the story, which is before um, before they join the Russians. There is the conflict back on Roe Island between the Malays and the Chinese. Um, and the Japanese are there as well, so it's kind of a massacre, it's a bloodbath. Um, and it turns out that Dempsey has... Um, decided that he is going to lead uh, one of the sides. Um, I honestly can't remember which, and I can't see. Yeah, he joined the Chinese side, and he's waving his sword around, and he's firing uh, a gun, and he looks as if he's trying to get killed by the Japanese. His eyes glittered, filled with flames. There was a strange, cold grin on his lips, and for a moment I was consumed by an enormous sense of comradeship for him. It was as if... I looked at some other incarnation of myself in those dreadful days before I had learned to live with the guilt, the pain, and the hopelessness of my own situation. And there's one more part in the book. I can't find it right now, um, but it's in one of those long discussions, and somebody mentions that we're all responsible for the violence and the conflicts in our own tiny way because of the lies that we accept, the lies that we tell to ourselves. And this... Um, this is a good moment to jump over to Dostoevsky because we've seen that uh, Bastable sees Dempsey as like a mirror image of himself. And in fact, the way that their uh, memories and their understanding of what's happened in the various stories kind of almost blurs into each other. They're both responsible for some things um, in, the, in the different stories and they both um, deal with their guilt in different ways. And... Ultimately, they need to um, accept the truth of what happened. Something similar happens in The Brothers Karamazov. Brothers Karamazov is a very simple story, even though it's like a thousand pages long. So what happens is uh, there's four brothers, but one of them is not uh, legally a brother. And um, the good guy, that's Alyosha, he comes back from his studies um, and he's super awesome guy and um, everything goes uh, wrong for him that can go wrong and he's still uh, optimistic and his other brothers um, one of them is like a man of action and he loves to run around the place but he's ultimately innocent the other brother is Ivan he is the uh, philosophical type and he's basically cut full of guilt um, near the end of the story um, it's mostly just conversations and people kind of going about their business but at one point, the father, old Karamazov, has been killed. Uh, he's rich, and of course, everybody wants to know who's done it and taken the money. And Ivan is uh, giving a long explanation of some philosophical uh, ideas about freedom. Alyosha is listening. Alyosha suddenly felt he was shaking all over. You know who, he mouthed feebly. He felt he was choking. Who then? Who? cried Ivan, almost in a frenzy. All his composure had suddenly vanished. All I know is, Alyosha continued, still almost whispering, it was not you who killed father. Not me? What do you mean, not me? 
Ivan was thunderstruck. It was not you who killed father, not you, repeated Alyosha firmly. There was a long pause. I know perfectly well it wasn't me. Are you raving mad? Ivan said with a faint, pale smile. His eyes were riveted on Alyosha. They were both standing under a street lamp again. No, I'm not, Ivan. Ivan, you know, you've told me yourself several times that you're the murderer. When did I say that? Ivan mumbled. Ivan is feeling guilty because it's his ideas uh, and his philosophy that have um, kind of driven the illegitimate son, this poor guy who's um, been ill-treated his whole life, you know, um, because he's not... um, He's not going to be treated uh, with respect and he's not going to get the same rights as the legitimate sons. Um, he's basically made that um, fourth son, the kind of secret son, um, crazy and given him this idea that it's justified even to kill the dad and to take the money. And in the end, um, the third brother, Dimitri, the man of action, gets the blame laid on him through a complicated series of events. Um and this is the idea, this is exactly the idea of the double, um, again, because there's three brothers officially, but really there's four, and one of them takes the place of the other. This is the, um, yeah, this is the uh, the concept that René Girard talks about in his, um, pretty old by now, his old book, uh, Violence and the Sacred. And he says that... Um, any kind of violence, any kind of um, anything that's um, that's violent towards another person, it tends to create this illusion. So, the bastard Smerdyakov, that's the illegitimate son, is the double of Ivan, whom he admires and hates passionately. To kill the father in place of Ivan is to put into practice the audacious statements of this master of rebellion, that's Ivan. It's to anticipate his most secret desires. So, Ivan has all these ideas of rebelling and turning against authority. Um, and those are the same ideas that you see in The Warlord of the Skies and The Land Leviathan and The Steel Tsar. There's constant fighting, there's constant rebellions, there's constant revolutions, and they get worse and worse. Um, but... And I'll quote again from uh, an old blog post on payingattentiontothesky.com. It's from 2010, uh, 2010-0407. The hallucination of the double synthesizes, as we have seen, quite a series of subjective and objective phenomena belonging to underground existence. The hallucination at once true and false is not perceived until the phenomenon of doubling reaches a certain degree of intensity and gravity. So there's almost this um, hall of mirrors effect. The more that one approaches madness, it says in the blog post, the more one equally approaches the truth. And if one does not fall into the former, one must end up necessarily in the latter. So it's interesting. It's also saying that you can't really get out of this hall of mirrors. But as long as you stay out of madness, and I guess that's almost like what these characters in... um, in the nomad of the time streams, they have to do, they have to avoid madness. So that's why they're always having these long discussions about uh, philosophy and reality and so on. And they're always kind of um, playing a role so that they fit in, but always kind of standing back again and trying to see the consequences of their actions. 
they're kind of avoiding this madness until the moment when the truth shows itself um, and it's clear it's not necessarily clear what happened in these stories right is Bastable meant to be Dempsey are they the same person um, or um, you, because Bastable never actually gets to say anything in all these stories he's only down on paper even in the story um, or in some way um, are they brought together so that they can help each other to realize this final truth that it's it's our responsibility to ourselves and to other people um, that really changes things that really makes an impact um, but what we do see is that if we remain the captain of the ship long enough, maybe we can see past the illusion and we can see what um, we can see past those ironies and we can stop making their we can stop making new names for things and we can look out the window and see what's really there. I think that's a great place to stop. Um, it's been quite a journey. The Nomad of the Time Streams is one that I will read and reread again and again. Um, partly for the childhood memories of um, Malaysia and uh, other places, um, partly for the great steampunk action moments, for the crazy alternate technology uh, in there, partly for the flying machines. Uh, Michael Moorcock does tend to put a lot of these um, flying machines, gyrocopters and such like into his stories. Um, and that's another uh, action element that I love. But especially, I think, for the way that he makes his characters play out these um, incredibly deep themes, you've got these amazing uh, psychological insights which are worthy of uh, great novels like Dostoevsky. But it's condensed into a pulp uh, format so that you almost miss them. I certainly missed them the first time round. And I'm sure if I read this thing again um, in a week, in a month, in a year's time, I'm going to realize stuff uh, that I didn't even see the first time. So I hope it's inspired at least one or two people to pick this up and have a look. And as it's getting late, I will say adieu and I'll see you in the time streams. Mm -hmm.